Today's discussion is uh, a very important one, one that I think we all think we know a lot about, myself included, and also one where there have been some unfortunate uh, grave distortions uh, in the world at large uh, about. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, Ten Commandments are perhaps maybe the most important, or not, the, not I won't say the most important, but the most ubiquitous, most well-known parts of the Torah, I would, I would argue, perhaps is the Ten Commandments. Uh, you talk to people in the street, there's billions of people around the world that have heard of the Ten Commandments, that um, even, even the atheists say we believe in the Ten Commandments. Yeah, we believe in the right to bear the right? Uh, <laughs> yes, that's something else. <laughs> uh, what? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Yes, yeah, so, but uh, it obviously originates in the Torah. Interestingly, I don't know if people know this, it's actually written in the Torah twice. Uh, once in Exodus, uh, chapter 20, and once in Deuteronomy, it's repeated. Obviously, when an entire section of the Torah is repeated almost verbatim, it's important enough, obviously, to be said again. And the question is, obviously, why? You know, obviously, the Torah is treating it uh, with some importance. Isn't one of the differences... <clears throat> it says remember the Sabbath. The other day, it's a, the other one it says observe. Or? Yes, yes. So, so that, that that's yeah. one of the differences. There's a bunch of differences. That's then, why you have two candles for Shabbat. For yeah, Zachar and Shamor. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And th- th- I'm saying the, th- this is this is there's so much scholarship on this part of of this uh, of the topic. Uh, you know, what, why are there differences or slight differences? So, so that's that's one substantial difference. Which is a different word. Remember the Shabbos or observe the Shabbos. Uh, well, b- b- well, no, that's that. No, it's both says honor mother. mother. You're damaged up with ish imo of tiro. It says when it says to fear your father and mother, it says mother first and then father. When it says to honor, it says dad first and then mom. So Why? That's a but, different part, a different. I said, well, that's a different different mitzvah. That's not the Ten Commandments, you know. And the Talmud explains that as saying that a child is more likely to fear their father and love their mother, honor their mother. So therefore, it's flipped around in the Torah to tell you that you have to love them equally. You have to honor them equally. So therefore it says dad before mom when it comes to honor. And it says mom before dad when it comes to fear. You know, you don't really... You had that backwards. You fear the father, you honor the mother. Uh, no, I didn't have it backwards. Did I? Maybe I did. Either way, it says fear the mother before the father. Yeah, I didn't have, I didn't have it backwards. <laughs> Yeah, it means you would more you would you, uh, someone tends more likely more likely to tend to fear their dad more than like uh, 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 a dad rarely tells a child you better wait till your mom gets home. Yeah, that doesn't happen. No, no, I do. Uh, so I guess maybe there are some exceptions. <laughs> but there, there's a cause. There's a says the because there's a tendency to fear dad more than mom. Therefore, to kind of balance it. It says fear mom before dad. Uh, but I'll, what I'll tell you is um, there is a difference between the first and second rendition of the, of, of the Ten Commandments um, in the reasonings for that mitzvah. So in the first time it says fear your, 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 your father and your mother. Uh, I'm sorry, honor your father and your mother in, uh, in, in, the, in the Fifth Commandment. And then if you look all the way in Deuteronomy when Moshe repeats it, it says, in order that you'll have a long life and you'll be happy and everything. And the question is, obviously, why? The Talmud actually asks that question. Why Why would it uh, give a whole elaborate reason only in the second rendition 
of the Ten Commandments and not in the first? And the answer is because we know the first tablets were destroyed. So the, what it says in Exodus is what was on the first tablets. What it says in Deuteronomy is on the second tablets. And because the Almighty knew that the first tablets were going to be destroyed, therefore, he doesn't want to talk about long life and happiness and all the great things and then just smash it. So therefore, he kind of took that out of the first rendition of the Ten Commandments uh, in order uh, to not destroy uh, the good tidings included in it. But in Ten Commandments that are obviously were not destroyed, therefore, that it has the full treatment uh, honor your parents in order that you'll have long life and happiness, etc. Did the rabbis ever say anything, and I know we might be getting a bit off topic here, about children being raised in single families in terms of um, we now have a tremendous number of households in this country that are single parents? Yeah, well, when it talks about honoring parents, it, it asks the question, what if the parents are divorced? Uh, or what if one parent is de- is deceased? Um, that it does address it does address that. In fact, there's this um, really interesting, I would say perhaps on the surface, really bizarre Talmud, where this guy comes to the rabbi and says, "Well, who do I honor more? You know, if my parents are not together, who do I honor more?" So um, he, and he persists in asking the question. And then, what you know, if I, dad asks for a drink of water, mom asks for a drink of water, which one do I get the drink first? And, uh, and he says, what you do is you fill up one drink, drink of water and you drop it between them and you squat like a chicken. <laughs> and obviously, the, that, that's not a typical response from the rabbi. And maybe sounds like a, that's a cop out. Uh, sounds like he's making a joke. Um, but it's it, the child well, I'm saying just the response is bizarre. It's a legitimate question, I would think. No, it's like, what do I do? You know, both parents are thirsty, and they both want to drink for me, and I have a, I have a responsibility to honor them both. Well, which one do I do? You know. Well, that's actually what. Yeah, what was, yeah, you could get two cups. Yeah, but obviously we're assuming it's not possible to do both at the same time. <laughs> they, and he gives them a, a really, really bizarre answer. Um, you put it between them and squat like a chicken. It doesn't seem like a real. It's. I think it's a yeah, legitimate question. Yeah, it does question. sound like the the rabbis making either a joke or trying to pass the buck or whatever. Uh, so that's possible because the 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 Talmud goes on to say that this rabbi knew that this child was an orphan for both parents, so he was just asking and persisting and pestering for not a practical reason. That's you know that's that's probably the simplest answer. The guy's like asking some silly questions and persisting. He's like, ah, oh, just drop between the and shake and just get out of here. You know. Uh, but there are those that talk about the um, – there are other places in the Talmud that describe certain behavior of chickens, and it's possible – which is possible that um, – it's possible that uh, what the rabbi was really telling him was something profound. Um, just to fill you guys in quickly, I'm saying, um, there's um, Ezra. Ezra made a bunch of enactments, a bunch of edicts. The Talmud lists ten edicts that Ezra made. made. And one of them, uh, since rescinded, uh, was that uh, after a man has a seminal emission, he has to go to the mikvah. He has to do what? Go to the mikvah. Okay. Uh, that's that's what he that's what he enacted. And the reason why that's the the tagline is that 
Torah scholars should not be with their wives like chickens. Uh, apparently, the mating frequency of chickens is something that the uh, Talmud wants to avoid, for, or Ezra wanted to avoid. Either way, that was since rescinded. So there are those that want to uh, explain that what the rabbi was actually telling him was something more profound. Either way, um, so to answer your question, Janet, uh, the, it is discussed what happens in, in, in one family households, and obviously, uh, even if parents are divorced, God forbid, and worse, if it's not amicable, uh, and there's a lot of tension and friction and, I guess, fighting even, uh, the child does not lose their responsibility to honor their parent. And in fact, there's almost nothing that can make a child, uh, free a child of their responsibilities, of their intense responsibilities uh, to honor their parents. So let's say your parent is really, really not a good guy, you know? You still got to honor them. And there's almost no way to get out of it. It does. It's a mass murderer. Yes, I would say maybe a mass murderer is different or... And I also say, and I mean, there are some parents who have made the argument when they want to dominate their adult kids' lives or tell their adult kids what to do, uh, how to live their life, how to, who to marry, who to, you know, uh, they'll say, remember, it says, honor thy father and thy mother. Right, so However, it doesn't say, correct me if I'm going the wrong direction here, uh, it doesn't say obey your mother oh, no. and father all your, when you're a parent yourself, you don't necessarily have to, I think... Of course not. Okay. Yeah, so I, I, I think I think that this would really warrant its own class, honoring parents, uh, because we'll talk about it a little bit, because there's really a lot, and the laws are, are very exhaustive. Um, like, I'll give you as an example here. If, let's say, your parent is involved, this is what the Talmud says, your parent's involved in an argument with someone else, so you cannot contradict your parent. Why? Because it's not, it's not, it's not, you don't, you don't, you know, if you really, it's not reverence to go and say, I'm an equal with my parent and I'm going to say that I disagree with him. Talmud goes a step further. What about if my dad's having an argument with someone else? I'm not allowed to agree with my dad. Why? Because when I show that I agree, that means that my dad needs my approval. He needs my approbation. Who am I? So you just right. keep your mouth shut. Am I an equal? Right? Is that what the message is? You just keep right. your mouth shut. And, and, and if your dad says, what do you think? Well, then, uh, then he's essentially saying he wants to know what you think. And then honoring your parent is to actually tell him what you think. But, but if like, he doesn't ask, you just stay quiet, right? Is that the message? Yes. You know, okay. you, you, know you're, you are, you have to revere to honor your, your, your father. You honor fa- your father and mother, your parents. The Talmud goes on and says, this, this is so bizarre, like it's, it's not some, we'll see, this will be a theme perhaps in the Ten Commandments, how perhaps difficult they are to fulfill and how we think of them in a different light than, than what they truly are. Talmud says that the requirements of honoring your parents are so severe that it's better for a child to be born parentless. It would be ideal. And obviously, someone who's born without parents is, is at a severe disadvantage in life. Mm-hmm. We know that. But because the requirements are so rigorous and so intense and so easy for someone to make a mistake, that it's even better for a child to not have, not have parents. You know, to just be orphaned from early age, be on his own, and be at the mercy of the world. But at least they won't encroach on the severe uh, um, um, mitzvah of honoring parents. 
Uh, either way, so the Ten Commandments are written twice in the Torah. We have to obviously ask the question why the why there's slight differences. Um, uh, some of them are, are like one one word that doesn't really change the meaning. Uh, some of them are more substantive, like what uh, like what Steve mentioned, uh, and that like it says different words. And uh, but the simple answer is that this was the, f- the f- that, that 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 Exodus is the first set of tablets, and Deuteronomy is the second set of tablets. So it's not a contradiction; it's just different. Uh, it's, it's it's different tablets, uh, and uh, and therefore uh, there's there's slight different uh, variations in in what it says. Uh, okay, but I want to start, I want to start from a basic level here. Some ask them some important question. Oh, one more thing. I want to encourage everyone to actually read them. Uh, I don't know if we have read them. You know, I feel we have as a society a rudimentary understanding of what they say, but I think it's important to read the actual uh, chapters that talk about. Uh, the experience, because, as we'll see perhaps a little bit later, the experience and everything else that was going on uh, around the time of the Ten Commandments, that is perhaps even more important than the content of the Ten Commandments. So the ten, the ten mitzvahs that we're getting at Mount Sinai, right? that's very important. Obviously, the very ten very important mitzvahs. Um, but the experience and the prophecy and the revelation and what actually happened, and what the Jewish people saw, what was going on there, is, I would say, even more important than the content of these ten mitzvahs. So it's important to read the whole narrative, because in the movies and the books, in the uh, fiction, they have done uh, a disservice, or you know, they haven't been necessarily uh, true to the original work. Um, Yes. <laughs> okay, so I want to start with a question. So we have, we have this experience. We have Mount Sinai. We have the Exodus. And just 50 days later, we have Mount Sinai. And this is the Jewish people getting the Torah. And it's going to be this momentous event. And we have these 10 mitzvahs. And I want to ask like, a very basic question. Maybe it's a simple, maybe it's a silly question. But like, why do we need to uh, uh, precede the giving of the whole Torah, all 613, everything that the Torah wants from us, why why do we have to have certain mitzvahs that are different, or certain mitzvahs that, that that are going to be at the beginning of this? It means why are we separating the mitzvahs into ten plus six oh three? Like these ten are different; they're on a pedestal. Like that's question number one. Question number two is you know on a slightly different note. What about these mitzvahs that are special? Like obviously these. What mitzvahs, about the ten that are yeah. special? Yeah. Okay. It means well, first of all, let, let, it, it, are, are are some mitzvahs of the Almighty more important than other mitzvahs of the Almighty? You would say well, not no. necessarily. I, w- I would just say that the answer to your first question is that's what makes us Jews. That's what makes us, um, we're supposed to go above and beyond. Uh, so it's not just these 10, but we have extra responsibilities, extra well, We have 613. To, right. That's, but why are we separating them into different categories if they're mitzvahs of the Almighty? Because these are the basic fundamentals of what a just and compassionate Yes, I, I would. I would agree to a certain point, and I would. I would. But I would argue um, you would that. Argue? <laughs> no, I wouldn't argue with you, but I argue that you're that, not his parent. That so I, I, I would him. say that the uh, <laughs> the seven Noahide mitzvahs, which are like the seven universal mitzvahs, I would say that those are perhaps um, even more 
uh, mitzvahs that are, are are the basic fabric of a functioning society. Aren't most of those? Some of them are overlapped, of oh, course. Yeah, I was about to say, yes. aren't most of those in the tent? Yes, yeah, so there is some overlap. But I would argue, and we'll talk about this a lot today, hopefully, thou shalt not covet. Hmm, that's a hard mitzvah. Observing the Shabbos, that's not for everyone. It's not necessary to, you know, um, uh, to have a functioning society. Even honoring parents. Our society today in America, I would argue, uh, has, you know, done away with that uh, and, to a big, large extent, unfortunately. And I think even... And we still function fairly well, right? Well, exactly. And no, we don't function. Okay, well, we could argue about this, but it's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, to a certain extent. It depends how, how we're going to define this. But I, I think that, that, that to limit the Ten Commandments as being uh, just a basic, universal, rudimentary mitzvahs for everyone to have a functioning society, I think that, 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 you know, that, that might be true to a certain extent. I think it goes far beyond that. Yeah, and it's interesting that Christians supposedly revere the Ten Commandments, even fundamentalist Christians, but they obviously... Don't observe them. I mean, Christians don't observe the Sabbath, right? That's right. Or That's right. Maybe some do in some way, in their own way. Seventh but of course, originally. Yeah. Well, Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah, they observe the Sabbath. But that's mm-hmm. a, what, a relatively small... Uh, well, yeah, but the Christians, uh, Sunday is their Sabbath. So it's a different day. Okay. They, they have the, some okay. They had all those blue laws and things. <laughs> I'm a native Texan. I know about the blue laws. You couldn't sell that's toys that's on Seven Ohio laws are Avram and Achai, which means you cannot eat meat from a live animal. If the animal's still alive, it's got to be dead before you, can, you eat it. Uh, exactly. And you would think that, that that would be necessary for functioning society. You kind of like people like pull off the leg of a cow and start grilling it. You know. People did okay. that at that time. I'll do the second, Sandy. Um, uh, not to blaspheme, not to steal, to have some sort of system of governance, some sort of law, no anarchy, and the three, and idol- uh, idolatry, uh, murder, and, and rape. Those are the seven. Very, very basic. Yeah, so these are adjudicated by the Gentiles as well. It means it's not, it's not the Jews don't adjudicate. These are universal laws given to humanity by the Almighty. What was the punishment for rape? Well, I, 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 it's not clear necessarily that this thing was actually adjudicated. It's, it's the responsibility of humanity, so to speak. And, and when they have to have a system of laws, they would also, um, they would also meet out punishments um, that they feel are appropriate. Um, well, the, the Jews never the Jews never um, intervened in the behavior of the non-Jews. So, why did you? Huh? Yes, yes, that would be true. As far as the Ten Commandments, why did you make light of the Shabbos as being not everybody can do that? Well, I mean, well, it's clearly not intended for everyone. Well, but, it's a Jewish mitzvah only, so it's worth 002 percent of the point two percent of the population. It's not a mitzvah for everyone, clearly. No, but if you're in, in Israel, they pretty much. Well, there's something special about Israel, right? Remember, yeah. that's a Jewish state, yeah, so. Of course there is. <laughs> right, part of the, the actually baked into Israeli law is that Shabbos is a day where business and commerce must be seized. 
So every restaurant that's open on Shabbos is actually violating Israeli law. Not Torah, the Torah law as well, but Israeli law because the uh, founders of the state recognize and have sensitivity to, to realize that uh, that Israel's a Jewish state thus has to reflect that in its laws. So the weekend in Israel is Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday? It's, it's just Saturday. There, there's a movement now. There's, a, there's been a movement for a couple of years now to add Sunday as well. Sunday's a regular work day in, in Israel. Um, yeah, like and right, so they want to change that. There is an effort, and I think it'd be a fantastic idea to change so that. They have a six-day work week. Six-day work week, and the problem is, what's the problem? The problem is that there's only one day of the weekend, uh, and that day happens to be the Shabbos. Uh, so if there's going to be a soccer game, for example, with fifty thousand uh, fans, when's it going to be? It's going to be on Saturday, and yes, it's an off day, but is is that really what that, you know, the Jews that, ought to that's do? That's violating the Shabbos. That's Shabbos. violating the Shabbos. Well, so I think everyone would be happy if you add another day. First of all, you synchronize yourself with the rest of the world, uh, number one. Number two, you provide an opportunity for Shabbos to be kind of a spiritual off day. Let Sunday be the day that it is today in America. Recreational. And recreational, family, etc. And you could get the work done, you know, in five days. Yeah, of course. And so, on what day? Okay, fine. So, on what day do the kids have their games? Yeah. So, w- what's obviously this depends on which community, which city. But unfortunately, uh, there because Saturday is the only off day, there's a tendency for a lot of non what I would call Shabbos like activities uh, to happen on Saturday. And I think that would probably change substantially if there was an off day on Sunday. Sandy, you had a question earlier. Well, uh, actually, comment to your question about you've got the 10, why not the 613? Well, why are they different? Well, what's special about these? Excellent. So we're going to talk about that precisely. Yeah, so, so yeah, so the first five actually between man and God, and the next five are man and man. And there's a lot of scholarship about this. I don't, we're not going to do so much about this, about how, like, if you look at them in two columns, how they relate and how they, all that very fancy, uh, fancy footwork is, is done. Um, I want to try to, like, delve into the, kind of the core ideas uh, and the core structure. So we have ten mitzvahs that are somewhat different than all of the 603. And, and how are they different? Are we, are we going to get through all ten today? Let's make an object, a, a commitment, if we can, if nobody will disagree, to at least get yes. before we end to the difference between killing and murder. Uh, okay. I'm particularly interested and in don't that. Don't forget the coveting thing. The what? The yes. coveting thing. Oh, the coveting thing, yes. All right, that's now, the Talmud tells us... Out, we have to cut out the 300 the sacrifice uh, commandment. Why? Why? What do you mean? Cut the, well, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. There's no sacrifices. So the Talmud tells us, additionally, in, in the Book of Makros 24a, that there's a difference between the first two commandments of the Ten and the last eight of the Ten. How so? That the first two, if you to look at them, if you read them, critically, you'll see the first two are in first person. Yeah, I am the Lord your... Yeah, okay. Right? And don't do not have any, any other gods, right, before me. Um... 
So it's God speaking. And the Talmud actually confirms by saying the first two they heard from God, the rest of them they heard from Moses. And we, we mentioned this before, I think. Torah, Tzivalana Moshe. Moshe gave us Torah. Torah is Gematria 611. There's only 611 mitzvahs we got from Moshe. Where he, you know, he, he, is, the, he is the intermediary uh, between us and God. He's the prophet who's given us what God wants. The first two we hear from God himself. That's why the Talmud says that the experience of the first two was so dramatic because the Jewish people, right, 50 days prior are slaves in Egypt. Suddenly they're having prophecy and they're not at all ready for it. They're not vessels that are primed for prophecy. So they hear prophecy and they die and they get revived. And they, like it, it's obviously not an experience that these people are ready to, uh, to absorb. Uh, but, but there is obviously something different about the first two commandments that we see. That there, it's really 2.8 and 6.03, I would argue. The first two is, is, is part of the Ten Commandments, but it's entirely different than the last day of the Ten Commandments, which are still different than the rest of the mitzvahs. So we see, on one hand, ten mitzvahs are special, and on the other hand, we see that these two are singled out, the first two, as being maybe even extra special, because these we get from God. And the question is why? What's so special about the first two that make it necessary that we have to hear it from God uh, why can't we just hear it all from Moshe or hear it all from God or hear all 613 from God or hear none from God? Like there's something obviously special about those two that, uh, that uh, demands uh, um, our investigation. I think the last question I want to I ask before we get started here is we know that the, the day um, where this Ten Commandments experience happens is the holiday that we still celebrate today in Shavuos. It's 50 days after the after. Pesach, the sixth day of Sivan, the holiday of Shavuos. And the moniker of the holiday uh, is Zman Matan Torah, the day of the giving, the holiday of the giving of the Torah. And if I were to say, how many misses in the Torah? Said 13. Excellent. How many we get in Mount Sinai? On Shavuos? 10. Let's do the math. That's less than 6, that's less than, what's that, 3%, 2%? Yeah. About a little more than 2%. If I gave you 2% of a document, would that be the day that you herald as you got it, or you got the beginning, you got a taster, you got a little, you know, like what they give in Costco, those little samples. <laughs> you got a sampling. You didn't get the whole Torah. And you perhaps you would argue and say that, well, maybe that's the beginning. Well, really, it wasn't the beginning. The first place the Jewish people stopped is a place called Mara. Remember the place they can't drink water from. In Mara, they actually got mitzvahs. The Torah even says it. Show me so, right? They they got mitzvahs in in Mara. So it wasn't even the first mitzvahs they got. It wasn't even the beginning of the giving of the Torah. So why is this, why are these ten, this day, heralded as a day of the when the Jewish people got the Torah? So I want to try to examine and ask some important questions. We know that the um, out of the 613 mitzvahs, we have uh, 248 positive mitzvahs. And 365 negative mitzvahs. Right? Negative mitzvah means thou shalt not do X, right? Don't do, refrain, withhold from transgressing. Now, we're told that a man has, man as in mankind, we have 248 distinct limbs. And they correspond to the 248 mitzvahs. That's already interesting. Like, 
Okay, that's is this just random? We have 248 limbs and there's a requisite amount of mitzvahs. The Talmud tells us that there's 365, 365 uh, negative mitzvahs, and that corresponds obviously to 365 days of the year. So that makes sense. Uh, I don't maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe it doesn't make sense. I don't know. There's some. Is that just random? That every 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 day is assigned a separate mitzvah, a separate negative mitzvah. Sorry, negative mitzvah. Uh, and every limb is assigned a separate positive mitzvah. So that's an interesting idea that we have to examine. But I, I would say for sure that for sure we could tell, I would make the argument that when the Torah is linking mitzvahs to our life, to our physical body and our existence in, in, in this world, 365 is completion. What it's telling us is that through the mitzvahs, we're able to achieve perfection. If you do all, all 248, well, then you're perfect. You, you're, you're a complete man. What happens to someone, God forbid, right, who is uh, uh, handicapped or is born with some de- de- you know, deformity? It's terrible, right? God forbid. It's such a disaster. Uh, and that's incompletion. And the argument goes that when someone does Torah in its entirety, then they become perfect and complete. When someone says, oh, well, I'll do this mitzvah, but not that mitzvah, it's akin to saying, someone saying, yeah, I need my right hand to drive and to write and to text, but who needs my left hand, right? And that's for me, of course. I mean, Because you're a lefty. Because I'm a lefty. <laughs> <laughs> Would you define limbs? How are you using the term Yeah, limbs? actual physical limbs. So fingers, wrists. Yes. Now, by the way, there's a book, an ancient Jewish book, that says, let me, let's, let's delineate 248 positive mitzvahs. The first one to do that, by the way, is Maimonides, uh, a man of firsts. Uh, he says, I'll tell you all, because the Torah tells us that the 613 doesn't actually delineate which one's a mitzvah and which one's not a mitzvah. If you count on all the instructions of the Torah, you'll have a lot more than 613, because some of them are, are part of categories. So if you have one mitzvah that has multiple categories, uh, it's not necessarily a distinct mitzvah, it's just part of one bigger mitzvah. So Maimonides does the work for us of saying, okay, there's 248 mitzvahs, let's list them, 1 to 248. And he does. He actually does it in, in, in conceptual order as well. Uh, but there's another book that says, you know what? Let's count the 248 limbs. And we'll tell you not only which one of the 248 limbs, which ones correspond to which mitzvah. For instance. For instance. Okay, for instance. No, the series no. Like, what was the lower mitzvah, like number 200, for instance, and what was 200 well, we're not going to we're not going to record value to mitzvahs. But what, let me give you share you share with you an idea. Um, well, let's hold off on this for for about four minutes. Um, so I, I would argue, I think, from this that we see that the mitzvahs in their entirety are meant to bring us to become perfect, and we find sources that talk about what happens to someone to someone's spiritual self when they abstain from certain mitzvahs. Well, then they look. On a spiritual sense, they look like someone who has a physical deformity. I mean, just like when you see someone, God forbid, who's a uh, who's a quadriplegic, or someone who is uh, in a wheelchair, or someone who is a uh, you know wounded veteran, or something like that, and it's 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 really striking, it's really terrifying, it's really sad, it's really tragic. 
But that's what someone looks like spiritually when they say there are certain mitzvahs that are not for me. Because in their spiritual body, right, in their spiritual makeup, they have a parallel to the physical. And just like in the physical we have two hands, we have two spiritual hands as well. Well, there's a mitzvah that corresponds to your spiritual right hand. And if you say, this is not for me, okay, then you are deformed spiritually. And that's obviously terrifying. Yet, so, so we see that the mitzvahs come as a package. It's not just individual mitzvahs that have their individual vow. They're all linked together, just like one body is linked together. Yet we see that there are certain, certain mitzvahs that are put on a pedestal. Ten mitzvahs are different. Ten mitzvahs are different. And not only that, there's two mitzvahs that the, that the Almighty gives us himself. They're, they're even more special. What's the deal? Are mitzvahs a package? Are, are we trying to achieve the totality of the mitzvahs? Or are we trying to just... Or, or is there something special about these two or these ten? So, um, Sandy hit the nail on the head, as she frequently does. And she said that, actually, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll see that included in the Ten Commandments are the entire 613 mitzvahs. We have a book. It's more likely, it's like, I would call it more of a really long poem by Rabbi Sa'ad Yagon. Rabbi Sa'ad Yagon is one of the Gaonim. What is a Gaon? A Gaon is the name given to the great Jewish leaders from about the time of the, uh, I would say, from the 7th century of the Common Era to the 10th century of the Common Era, which is a little bit of a, of a dark period in general in, in, uh, in world history. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and... Uh, we don't. It's it, 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 and even in, in Jewish times, we don't have the same degree of scholarship as we had previously in the Talmud, the Mishnahic era, or even after that in the Rishonim era. Uh, but that's the time. So Rabbi Sadegron is one of the very important uh, figures uh, of that time period in, in human history, in, in Jewish history. And he t- he makes he says, you know what? Let's let's take the ten ten mitzvahs, takes the ten mitzvahs and tells you which of the other six thirteen fit into each category. Right? Which ones go into mitzvah? One, two, to ten. Right? If you take all 613, they all fit into, these are ten categories that incorporate all of the mitzvahs, which is a fascinating idea. The, the Midrash goes a little step further. If you actually count the letters of the Ten Commandments, from the beginning of I am the Lord your God, till the end of thou shalt not covet, 613 letters. Corresponding to the 613 mitzvahs that are incorporated within that. But the Ten Commandments were not originally written in Hebrew, were they? The Ten Commandments? Yeah. Of course. Were. Yeah. Aramaic or Hebrew? Hebrew, 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 Hebrew. And uh, Hebrew, old ancient Hebrew, modern Hebrew, still 613? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which was, remember, the Hebrew, even when the Hebrew changed, it just changed the, the style of writing. But the actual letters and how it's spelled, no, the spell is spelled the same. Just like if you would use an uppercase or a lowercase English, right? The, uh, or script. Oh, it's in, it's in Hebrew, of course. Because the, in English, it's, there's, no English there's much more words. Now, in the translation, if you actually take a, an Arkeen James or an Art Scroll edition of, of the Ten Commandments, you count to be a lot more than Section 13 because Hebrew is a very uh, conservative with letters. Because remember, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew words are, are pretty much only consonants. Yeah, but Jews don't speak much, right? 
Yeah, well... <laughs> uh, there's no vowels, so the words are much, are much, are much shorter. No, there's no, no, the vowels are there. Well, sometimes, sometimes the Torah does incorporate vowels. So in Hebrew, the vowels can either be there or not be. That's what we, the idea of chaserot and yitzerot of the Torah, of the Torah uh, which sometimes words are spelled with vowels in the form of letters, like the aleph, the hey, the ayin, the, you know, and sometimes those are included in nikudot that are not in the Torah scroll. Like we all know the nikudot and these, these dots and the slashes, and the, right? Like Plus they, signs. They were there no, well, that's part of how to read the Torah, right? Uh, but sometimes the Torah actually does. Yeah, it means uh, like uh, the word I just saw this in the Talmud recently. The word Naara, which means a young girl. How do you spell it? Well, Nun Ein Reish Hey, but in the Torah it's spelled frequently Nun Ein Reish, because the Hey. The hey is a vowel, which is in the form of, of the Nikudot. But sometimes it's spelled with a hey. And the Talmud even goes and says, it says the reason why it's spelled with a hey in a certain instance is to tell you a separate, a separate law. So that, that extra vowel that does nothing really to contribute to the pronunciation of the word is actually teaching you an entire law that we derive because uh, it's not necessary to be written. Uh, either way, this is a fascinating idea. Like, oh, there's 613 letters in the Ten Commandments. And they correspond to all the mitzvahs. So perhaps we could say that when the Jewish people got the Torah at Mount Sinai, they actually did get the Torah at Mount Sinai. They got a very condensed version of it. They got a highly concentrated version of the Torah. But they got it all, because all 613 mitzvahs are included in, the top, in, the, in this top ten list. Well, maybe they didn't even know that. They didn't know that. And they were, you know, and then Moshe spent the next 40 years unpacking the Ten Commandments for them and, and showing them the, the, uh, the, um, uh, the manifestations of these ten godly principles. How does it translate into our life, which is a much more complex? And I'll tell you even more. We find that all the Torah is included in the first two. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, which we heard from God, those two incorporate all 613 mitzvahs. How so? Tell me the first two again. Faith, believe in God, no idolatry. You shall not have any other gods. That's right, right, that's right. You don't have any gods, no graven images, etc. How so? Every mitzvah. Anything, anything that you do because God tells you that's an affirmation of faith. And any time you reject God, you say, God says this, hmm, I'm not listening, I'll still do it. Well, that has a taint of idolatry as well. If you really believed in God, would you do it? No. So obviously you're opening up the door for God not being the primal power uh, or the only power in the world. So essentially, the Jewish people got the entire Torah from God himself. And that's why it was so important, so crucial, to take these two, the first two mitzvahs of the ten, and separate them from everything else. And these, the Jewish people have to hear from God. Because at the, at the core of all of Torah, 
is these two mitzvahs. And the Almighty wanted the Jewish people to hear it straight from God. It's no interlocutor. Right? Moshe has not evolved. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Every, every mitzvah is rooted in faith. And every transgression is rooted in idolatry. We'll take this a, a step further to what Leslie brought up here. If all mitzvahs, positive mitzvahs, correspond to a, a limb, which one would you think that the mitzvah of faith, the first mitzvah of the Ten Commandments, corresponds to? Which, which limb would you argue? The Booyah, the heart. And it's absolutely clear in the sources that talk about it. It's clear that the heart, because the heart is at the core of the, the big picture of the body. Right? Everything depends upon it. It's the lifeblood of every other organ. Faith is a lifeblood of every positive insult. And which day would you say corresponds to the, tra- the prohibition against idolatry? Well, Shabbat is not a day of the year. Which day out of 365? Yeah. If you remember, we spoke about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day where... I'm sorry? We're closer to God because we become like angels. Exactly. Because this is the day where we don't have any other gods. There's only one power. Thus, this is the day where we have the mitzvah of having the one God and thus no others. And every mitzvah, every negative mitzvah uh, stems from that, from, you know, from that, from, you know, from that, just like Yom Kippur, that's the, that, that's, the most, that's the day that's most influential for the whole year. It's the day of the year. Right? This mitzvah is the day of, uh, the, is the mitzvah uh, of, of all of them. So, I, I mean, this, this, I think, presents the Ten Commandments in a different light. Like, now it's not just uh, ten mitzvahs that were chosen at random to be given on a mountain. That this, these are this is everything really in a very highly condensed uh, format. Uh, the two and the ten, which is interesting, so and thus. The first commandment corresponds to heart. Yes. And what about the second? Second commandment corresponds because that second commandment is is a negative commandment. Don't have any other gods. Don't make any graven molten images. Right. That corresponds to the day, which is Yom Kippur. Thus, we could say, this is the holiday of getting the Torah. When we celebrate the holiday of receiving the Torah, right, it's because we indeed got the whole Torah. Yes, it took us 40 years to actually uh, to flesh it out and to make sense of it for our lives, bless you. So what's uh, significant about the number 40, that it would take 40 years? Well, accident, well remember that it didn't have to take 40 years. Um, Necessarily, um, true. But it also forty is the uh, forty is the um, is the amount of days. What the, what the Torah tells us is that the um, that the Jewish that the spies Moshe sends spies into Israel. They go for forty days touring the land. They come back and they start speaking negatively about the land. And people say, "Oh, let's go back to Egypt. It's such a bad idea. We're going to lose the fight." And they don't realize that the Almighty is with them. Those forty days in 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 the punishment the Jewish people. Got for those forty days uh, was the forty years of of wandering. The so, yes, that's true. So we, we find we do find a lot. I'm not to disagree with that. Wasn't it also to um, 
uh, get the generations that it's in to be consumed, basically. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So so it's essentially it's it's turning over a new leaf. Right. So it's, it's a different nation that uh, leaves Egypt than the one that uh, that goes into the land of Israel. So I, I found here another very powerful idea here. Uh, this is uh, in one of my grandfather's uh, writings. He's ta- he says over here that um, you know we live a life and we have a society. We have a, we have the, we have the government and we have the police power. We have the army. We have elections. Lord knows we have elections. Uh, we have culture. We live in in a world with a lot of stuff going on, right? Uh, and then we have science and law, and then we have religion. And what happens, like? In, in our world, right? So we have religion. Religion is very important. So Sunday we go to the class or, you know, in America, Sunday you go to church and then you go to the concert and then you go watch the game and then you go to your job. And that's the world we live in. You, you know, you read the paper, you're interested in sports, whatever it is. That, that's the life that we live in. And one of those categories is religion. What happens to someone who goes to Mount Sinai and experiences prophecy with millions of other people and has the most transformative experience in all of human history. What happens to that person? What happens right away? What happens to the sports? What happens to the politics? What happens to all the nonsense in our lives? It all disappears. It all loses its value. The second that you have absolute clarity, you have this tangible vision, this experience, and, I'll, and once again, I re- encourage everyone to read what happened there. Just read the descriptions, both in, uh, in Exodus <coughs> and, in, and in Deuteronomy. You hear God speaking. Think about that. Everything else becomes uh, moot. That's just, just God saying, Anochi, one word, I am the Lord your God. Boom. Everything, everything else in your life loses its importance. Religion is no longer just one element of your life. It becomes the only thing. Which obviously for us, I think, is probably a little scary. You know, we don't want it. <laughs> we don't want it to be too invasive into our life. But imagine we were by Mount Sinai. And we hear this. And we experience this. And we, and we freak out. And this is not meant for us. And it's so overwhelming. Oh yeah, it's suddenly it's not just a, a nice thing, it's morality, it's family. It's not that, it's everything suddenly. Uh, and like religion changes from, you know, from ceremonial, uh, you know, from being very important to being central in our lives. Which I, I think, as well, we talk about the Ten Commandments, like think about what, the, what happens to the people there. Think about how their life gets shaken up. You know, think about what a transformative experience this is. It's not just about, let's get some laws. Oh, let's find a convenient way to amplify uh, the laws to, to millions. You don't have to just, you know, you don't have to just have a lecture where you could fit a thousand people in a room and you got to do that, I don't know, five, 500 times or 5,000 times. It's not just a convenient way to inform people about everything. It's a way to change a nation of slaves into the Jewish people and then change the world. And the golden calf, 40 days later. And so I'm trying to, to hear what you're saying, but also understand that, so what already? Because you see this, yes, it is transformative, but we all go back 
to our highest levels of learning, and we, we got to fall back on something. And, and even though as, as huge as it was, we still revert back to what is our new normal. That's right. So if you remember, we spoke about this a few times, um, about the, A, the golden calf, and B, uh, the golden calf juxtaposed to, to Billum. Uh, because that's a very good question. Like, you have this experience, and 40 days later, worshiping a golden calf. So first thing we got to do, we have to understand that really was they weren't really worshiping the golden calf. It wasn't everyone. It was just a mixed mul- multitude. It was just 3,000, very small percentage of the people. But still, uh, it clearly demonstrates that this is not a normal way of learning. This is not well, the organic growth. It, it was a Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and this is not organic growth that actually has lasting impact. Uh, I, I think, it, or at least not lasting impact on a behavioral level. Maybe on a, on a philosophical or faith intellectual base level, yes, because you still, it's undeniable what you saw. But, uh, but your behavior is not going to change because of inspiration. It's actually work and it's, it's, it's slow growth, at least for the most part. Another idea here. We find in the run-up to the Ten Commandments, the Almighty tells Moshe what's going to happen. And he tells him this verse as follows. Hashem said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a dense cloud in order that the nation hears when I speak to you, and also in you they will forever believe. The Ten Commandments, the experience of Mount Sinai, was the testing grounds for Moshe's uh, uh, capabilities as a prophet. Why did the Jewish people believe in Moshe? Well, Moshe split the sea, and Moshe did the miracles in Egypt, and Moshe gave us water out of the rock, and Moshe turned the bitter waters into sweet waters. Is that why the Jewish people believe in Moshe? No. Maimonides goes at great lengths to, 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 to disprove that by saying that all those miracles were all necessary. Those were all necessary, not as necessary to prove Moshe's uh, truthfulness as a prophecy, but rather because, well, you need you need to split the sea or else the Egyptians are attacking. Or you need the water because everyone else is going to die. What actually, the reason why the Jewish people, and I'll read you a direct quote here uh, from Maimonides where he has his four chapters on, on prophecy in the end of the very first section of the very first section of Mishnah Torah. As follows, quote, why, so first he says, the Jews didn't believe him because of the miracles that he did. Why? Because even someone who believes in miracles, you see something miraculous happening, you're still in your heart, you're not so sure, maybe there's some sort of trick, some slay of hand. Rather, all the miracles that Moshe did was all for the actual need, not to be in proof on his prophecy. He had to, uh, he had to uh, um, uh, suppress the Egyptians. He had to split the split the sea. He's got to bring down the manna because other people, otherwise people will die. They were thirsty. So he's got he's to get the water from the rock, etc., etc. Why they believe him? Because of the experience at Mount Sinai that their eyes, or our eyes, saw. No, no, no one convinced us. Our ears heard, and no one else told us about that. The fire, the sounds, the 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 the, the, the uh, um, the, you know, the crazy uh, uh, events that they saw. Moshe goes up into the cloud, and we hear God talking to him. Uh, you know, and then 
we essentially become bystanders to Moshe's prophecy. The Jewish people believe in Moshe's prophecy because they experience prophecy alongside him. That removes all doubt. Thus, I would say that the Ten Commandments are not necessarily about the mitzvahs themselves, but about the experience in that the experience made us have the faith in Moshe that when Moshe gives us the entire Torah, or most of the Torah, we know that this is coming from a verified prophet. And thus our belief in Moshe, that he's actually telling us what the Almighty tells him, and we're not believing, there's not the religion of Moshe, and the Torah that he delivers us is the word of God, not the word of Moshe. Well, how do we know? We only trust Moshe. Right? You know, he, how do we know that he doesn't have a, a editorial authority in the Torah? Well, he's saying this is the word of God. And I'm not, I'm just the scribe, I'm the typist, I'm the stenographer. Well, how do we know? Because we know that Moshe is a verified prophet. Moshe is called the father of all prophets. Why is Moshe called the father of all prophets? Abraham was a prophet who preceded him. Abraham's Moshe's great 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 grandfather. Why is, you know, why is Moshe the father of all prophets? Well, the answer is because we only believe that Abraham is a prophet because Moshe told us. Moshe is a verified prophet. Why? Because a nation of millions experienced. And if Abraham came to us and said, I had prophecy, what would we say to him? We don't know if you're telling the truth or not. Well, we, we, it turns out he was telling the truth if he was to say that. But we would have no idea of verifying it. Jacob has the prophecies, sees the latter. How do we know that's true? If Jacob came to tell us, then we, we probably would believe him because he's Jacob. But we wouldn't know. We'd still have our doubts, I think. I think that's reasonable to be skeptic of, of someone's claim to prophecy. Noah as well. How do we know Noah was a prophet? Because it did rain for 40 years, so the proof was in what he said happened, happened. Yes, but is that, is, is that proof enough to convince the skeptics? I don't know. Remember, Noah, that, that's, that's many, many, many years prior. Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds of years prior. Why do we believe that Noah was a prophet? Because, because Moshe told us. Because Moshe told us. Because Moshe told us that Noah was a prophet. And by the way, even prophets that come subsequently, why do we believe that Joshua's a prophet? Why do we believe that Samuel's a prophet? Because Moshe lays out the groundworks for vetting prophets, for testing them. What are the requirements to be a prophet? Moshe lays it out. Prophecy has to come true, right? Oh, yeah. So there's a whole vetting process, uh, how we actually check on prophecy. uh, How do you you become, become a prophet? How do you demonstrate your prophecy? How do we, you know, check to make sure you're not a false prophet? What happens to a false prophet? You know, that's obviously very, very disastrous. How do we know that? Why do we believe that Samuel's a prophet? Because Moshe lays out the groundwork. Moshe's the verified prophet. We all experience his prophecy together with him. And Moshe tells us that when someone does X, Y, and Z, they're a prophet. And when you test them with X, Y, and Z multiple, multiple times, and every time the prophecy comes true, they're a real prophet. And thus, we believe in, in Samuel, in Malachi, in all the prophets because of Moses. Because Moses' is the, Moses's prophecy is at a much higher level. And his verification was on a national scale. Pretty remarkable. Some other ideas here. We haven't even talked about Ten Commandments, right? We'll still get there. <laughs> we find um, 
in the Mishnah that the the world is created in ten utterances. You actually look in, in Genesis. Ten times says God says this, God says this, God says this, ten times. Okay, so we have ten utterances to create the world. <clears throat> we have ten commandments. Hmm. Is there, any, is, there, is there any relationships? So actually, this, this past Friday night, I was thinking about this, because we know that this past Parsha, we just started a new cycle of Genesis. Uh, Simchas Torah, a couple was last week, and thus this past Shabbos was the Parsha's Bracious. Beginning of Genesis. And the first thing we see is God created the world, 31 verses, very, very, obviously, intriguing, and very hard to understand, of course. That's not really an exhaustive description of Genesis. Uh, ten times says God created and the Talmud goes on. The Mishnah actually in, in the book of Chapters of the Fathers says that there's ten utterances that God used to create the world. Perhaps these two are linked. Perhaps we have a at Mount Sinai another realm of recreation of the world. Perhaps the world before Sinai and the world after Sinai is something dramatically different that it rivals creation itself. Isn't Jewish philosophy based off that God created man to complete the world so that his ten utterances were what he did to create it and these ten commandments are our way to completing it? So as if this is how we partner with God to create the world. That's a thousand percent what I agree with. But I didn't even think of it in, in that. In that, um, and then we find also as well. I, we also find as well that that um, there's. I found so many more examples of the number ten reflecting this idea of holiness and perfection. We need ten people for a minion. The Talmud says that Shechina only rests on ten. Abram had ten trials. Remember, Abraham is, is the most transformative character because he's the one who introduces monotheism. If you guys remember, when we talked about uh, macro-Jewish history, we talked about the idea of 6,000 years. Y'all remember that? 6,000 years, the word the Thomas says, 6,000 years is, is the world. The world 6,000 years. 6,000 year experiment. 2,000 years of Tohu, of chaos. 2,000 years of Torah. 2,000 years of Mashiach. And we described this. This is this is like what Dan said. This is what is the overview of world history. It starts off with chaos. People don't know of God. God creates everything. Everything's there for us to uh, to um, uncover God, but it's all hidden. It's chaotic. And then we have Abraham emerging to change the chaos. And we see Abraham's ten trials. Right? God creates the world with ten. Abraham's ten trials, and then the next step is Torah. Ten Commandments. And the idea, and this is another thing that I found, that holiness is associated with ten. We find the Talmud says, also another intriguing statement, this world is created with the letter He. The letter looks like this. And then the next world, Olam the spiritual world, is created with the letter Yud. What is the gematria of Yud? That's ten. Holiness is associated with number ten. I even found the Maharal saying something, this is not my style, but I thought it was cool. That the number 10 is, is perfection. Why? Because everything, you say 7, you, you can still move to 8. 8, you still move to 9. 9, you move to 10. 10 
The only way is to start back from one. Interesting. Okay, well, you know, but I, if, if you eat, but if, you know, I'm saying, I, I think there's a danger of saying, well, I, I had 10 donuts. That's really holy. You know? Oh, holy, nice. <laughs> 10 bagels. Like, you know, there's a risk, obviously, of, of taking this too far, but, you know, we find that 10, ten plagues, and is it all coincident? Probably not, especially because the Talmud links them all together. I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, we could talk. We talk about maybe that this marks a turning point in all of human history, all of world history, really. That this creation, creation of the world, uh, Abraham's ten play, uh, t- ten trials, the ten plagues in Egypt, and the ten commandments of giving the Torah. Perfect ten. <laughs> Go ahead. What do you say? Perfect ten. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, Let us mean any number of things. I'm not thinking let's just quickly, one thing. Okay. Let's okay. let us quickly uh, let's quickly go through the Ten Commandments because I think obviously in the Ten Commandments themselves uh, there's a lot to talk about, uh, and obviously in this format it's hard to really cover everything. But we'll try to do some of the important things. Well, they're all important, but we're gonna try to cover some of the things that I, I like. Vitali pointed out are very, um, I think, problematic for us in the Ten Commandments. So let's quickly run, run through them, just w- w- what they say and what they mean. And obviously, this is going to be a shortened version. Read the, uh, it's not so long, but read it uh, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. So the first one is, I'm Lord your God, believe in God. Right. Intellectual mitzvah, to have faith. Not only that, I am Lord your God, who took you out of the line of Egypt. <clears throat> so the God we're describing is not just a creator, but someone who's involved on an individual and for certainly on a national level with with people, with the Jewish people. I'm the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. So if you're sitting there, you're hearing this, you're saying, God took me out of the land of Egypt. Like, God's involved with my life. So when we say that we have to have faith, it means more than believing in a power, in a deity, in a creator who may have been gone on to deal with other cosmic important things. Rather, it's someone who's involved with us in our lives. Which, by the way, the idea that Einstein can wrap his head around, the idea of, of, of a creator, of, a, of an intelligence behind all the cosmos is something that a lot of people can wrap their heads around. But someone who's interested in our life, who, so to speak, matters to God what we do, how humans are the center of this universe... That's something that's hard for a lot of people to wrap our heads around. Because we seem to be so uh, unimportant. Yet, the, what the Torah is telling us by, by having faith, have to, the, the, by, by the importance of having faith, is that it's not just about believing in a God, it's believing in a God who took us out of the land of Egypt. So let's, and we're going we're gonna to expand upon that point in a little bit. Next mitzvah. Don't have any other gods. Don't make any other I- idols. What does that mean? Do not have a little... I know my dad used to do business in, in India, and he would say that every, every office building has got a little little some, little some figurine, and they bow down. It's like insane. Like, these people are good at business. It's what's bizarre about it. People are very good at business, but they have these really... I, I just, 
rituals, but they take it very seriously. It's, 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 well, remember, remember, we're not according power to something physical, right? We're, we're using it as a reminder. We use physical reminders about God. But the idea of something that you can make in a factory to be, to have some power is very bizarre to us. And I would say that we, when we would look at this mitzvah, don't have any other gods, we say, oh, I got that one covered, right? I don't got no other gods. That's what we would think. Uh, and then we find in the Talmud as follows. Abraham had a book called the Book of Avodah Zarah. Now, we have a Book of Avodah Zarah as well. You go to the Talmud, 63 books, one of them is called Avodah Zarah. Avodah Zarah means idolatry. So it's a book about the laws of idolatry. The laws are very, uh, obviously, the exhaustive laws on, on idolatry. And if you look at our book, you open up any mission, any Talmud, on the Book of Avodah Zarah, but it talks about idolatry. It has five chapters. Talmud says that Abraham's book of Avodah Zarah, in Abraham's edition of the Talmud, it had 400 chapters. Now, if you were to actually read through the five chapters of our book of Avodah Zarah, you would say this covers everything. What else is there? What else is there that's not covered? Why would Abram have to have such a, such a bigger book? doesn't make any sense. So I think this opens up the discussion for uh, our maybe expanding our definitions of idolatry. How so? At the root of idolatry, what part of our what part of our uh, mental uh, capacities are going to be oriented around idolatry? Grandfather said so. Mm, but it's, it's, well, my, my grandfather said as follows. He said, every human makes priorities. We have, uh, we have in our head a list of values, and we have uh, a totem pole so to speak, where there's the highest value and then there's things of less value. And the decisions we make are based upon this, uh, this, this ladder of, of priorities in our lives. So you obviously go with a higher priority, right? You know, your children and your family and, you know, your, your, your job. Like, the, these things are more, a higher priority than what's happening in Syria right now, right? You know, yeah, we care about it, but not enough, I guess. Or not that much. And every human has the ability to make priorities in life. Now, some people, their priorities in life are video games. Or like the highest priority in life is video games. Video games. <laughs> or um, uh, stamp collections. Or politics. Right? That's possible. For, that's the highest priority in life. And what does it mean... To not to believe in God, it means that God is a a priority. B, the highest priority. If anything has a higher priority in your list of priorities than God, well, what does that mean? That there's something that you hold of more in more importance than God. 
Well, anything, anything that is on a higher, is higher on the totem pole than God is by definition idolatry. So skipping, say, a service in favor of playing Zoom or whatever they play now is... Keeping what? Uh, skipping the service at the temple. No, it's much more than that. Uh, it's much more than that. It's, adult, adult, it's adult. if your job is more important to you than God, that's idolatry. Because that's a priority that's above God. What's the motivation? What do you mean? The motivation for someone to to adjust your priorities? Well, that's not. I don't, I don't think. I don't think it's necessarily. It's not necessarily conscience. Hidden desire within us. I would. I would say that most often this prioritization happens, and we don't even know it. We don't. We don't consciously make a list. This is maybe. Maybe we should do that. Uh, we don't necessarily mm-hmm. consciously do it. I think we can consciously do it, and I think that's what this mitzvah is telling us. It was just telling us, don't have anything on a higher priority than God, because that's idolatry. How could you have a higher priority than God? How could anything be more valuable than God? Well, if it is, that's idolatry. Because that's according to something other than God, the highest status on the pole. Uh, um, now, I would say it could be done consciously. I think it's most often done unconsciously, because, or subconsciously, because people don't think about these things necessarily, even though they do it. Your job being a higher priority than than God. The job is part of life and everything like that. Why is that an idolatrous thing? What, what do you have to do for for God that interferes with your job? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to manifest itself manifest itself in in behavior. All it means is that when someone in their mind or in their Capacity to make prioritizations that's something on a higher level than God, that's idolatry. Now, I would, I would say, I, would, I think there's, there's three steps here, and this will get even more intense. It'll make you even more uncomfortable, Bernie. It's going to happen. Like this. And this shows us how there's room for us to grow in this mitzvah that we said, oh, I'm not, I, don't, I don't bow down. I don't genuflect to figurines. Right? I'm good. That's what we think. Uh, but when we actually, you know, expand the issue, like, like, we do here traditionally in this class, we find yeah, that maybe there is room for us to, to improve. Yes? I was just saying, you don't have to necessarily, I mean, separate. Um, you can bring elevating God, even at work. So yeah, so. Examples, even at work. Oh, yeah, so I'm going to show how this works. Right, and so therefore there's not this. Yeah, there's a, doesn't necessarily need, need to be a confidence. I'll show, show what I mean here. So I think the first step is to make God a priority. If God is not a priority at all, then clearly, you know, there's there's room for improvement. Now, once God is a priority, we have to consciously find a way to make God the top priority. And then the third step, which would make even more comfortable, Bernie, that's what I was referencing earlier, we have to make God the only priority. Now, what I mean by that is, there's a difference between a relative priority and an absolute priority. If anything has its own value, irrespective of God, then there's some value and priority that you're giving to something that's not God. So at the highest levels, that's also idolatry as well. Why? Because how can anything have its own value? It could have relative value. So what it looks like, what Abraham looked like with his 400 chapters of the book of idolatry, what it looked like was God obviously is a top priority, but God's also the only priority. And every other priority is only how related is it to the top priority. 
Thus, he would say, listen, Torah study. That's the best thing to bring man close to God. Well, that's got to be next on the list. Well, what else? What comes after that? What, 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 what item is next going to bring me closer to the top priority? And that's how you would make your whole list of priorities. So yes, your job would be important because if you don't have a job, you'll be destitute. If you're destitute, you won't be able to serve God. So that's a priority, but only vis-a-vis the ultimate priority. And you'd say, well, you have to have a little bit of, of downtime because if you don't have any downtime, you'd go crazy. Okay, so the sports is also a priority, but it's only a priority because it brings us to God. So, so thus, it's possible to spend your whole life just working and not committing idolatry, which most of us, we walked in today, we're like, oh, we're good with that. You know, we have problems with thou shalt not covet and much all the way, all the way later on. And but, then obviously, but with the exception of the Sabbath, right? What do you mean? You said it, did you not say just a moment ago, it's possible to work your whole life and, and uh, repeat what you just said? I, 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 just, I just said that when we talk, we talk about the second myths of the Ten Commandments, idolatry. And not commit idolatry. Okay, I thought you said so, it's possible to work your whole life and not commit idolatry. No, in the goal of becoming like Abraham, so to speak, in this mitzvah, where you have not only don't have any blatant idolatry, as in bowing down to statues, but you don't have any remnant of idolatry in your consciousness, in your being, in your mind, wherein there's no priority aside from God in your life. Okay. Which is obviously a tall task for us. And by the way, I would say, and this may sound surprising to you guys, uh, it was surprising to me when I read it last night, uh, when my grandfather writes in one of his uh, many books um, that... The Ten Commandments are in descending order. How so? The easiest one, the one that's closest for us, is thou shalt not covet. And we would have thought that the opposite is true. That the easiest one is faith, and that, that's, of course we can have faith. When we actually dig deep into these mitzvahs, we talk about the first mitzvah really incorporates all 248 mitzvahs. Everything that we do in our life is an act of faith. Every mitzvah is an act of faith. And everything that we have that's not a mitzvah, that's not God, that's not God-related, is an act of idolatry. Like, that obviously is so distant from us. Of course. And, and we recognize that. It's distant from everyone here and distant probably from everyone who's on this planet. Well, not, maybe not everyone, but the, 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 some of the righteous people are maybe different. But this is obviously, I don't think, something that we could really accomplish overnight uh, or maybe not even over a lifetime to, to get like Abraham did it. So we, we don't really uh, expect to be as great as him. Maybe we, maybe we ought to strive to do that. But, you know, this is obviously something that's very distant from us. And when we go through one by one, we'll see that these mitzvahs have a simplistic understanding and those have a, a deeper understanding as well. So let's move on to, to mitzvah number two here. Uh, three. Uh, do not take the name of, God, of the Lord your God in vain. So... Um, Obviously, that covers any kind of uh, flippancy that we might have with God. Uh, it's pointed out in Rashi, Talmud, uh, that this also means to not make any pledges or any swearings uh, in God's name. You know, it's very, very severe when you invoke God into your day-to-day conversations. Uh, Why we affirm in court? Uh-huh. Yes, that's kind of a... Yes, that, that, that's... So yeah. So that, I, well, I'm not going to get into that right now exactly. Uh, but we take it very, very seriously. I and mean, that's why they do it, by the way. 
when someone would in, in the Jewish in Jewish uh, jurisprudence, uh, swearing was a big, big, big part of it. Uh, like if someone has, let's say, uh, the idea of one witness. So in order to uh, invoke a, um, even a civil law, you'd have to have two witnesses. So if I say, hey, Bernie, you owe me 100 bucks, uh, I would have to have two witnesses that prove either that I gave you the, I lent you the money, etc. You told you stole it from me. Or... However, if I have one witness, that will make you swear. Because you argue that you don't have to. So you, well, what does it mean to swear? It means to pull out a Torah scroll. It means to declare and all that's holy that you didn't take it from me. And the Talmud even talks about people that were innocent that would say, I'd rather pay the money than have to swear. I'd rather pay the money. And I'm, I'm innocent, but I want to pay the money because I don't want to have to swear. Mm. Remember the Shabbos make it holy. Or guard the Shabbos. We think of that as, you know, a nice day. Which And it is, there is a simplistic understanding. But at the deepest understanding, Shabbos is the root of every, every, every day. We find in, 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 the, in the Jewish sources that talk about Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, they only exist due to the spiritual power of the previous Shabbos. And Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they only exist due to the spiritual power of the forthcoming Shabbos. Thus, essentially, Shabbos is what gives life, uh, vitality to the whole week, our whole life. Uh, honor your parents. Obviously, we spoke about that. Thou shall not murder. You know, the Talmud says that if someone embarrasses someone in public, that's that's murdering. Like, why? Because now the face get, gets 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 whitened as a cadaver. Well. That's the realm of killing someone. Whoa! Anytime you offend someone, it's as if you killed them? Obviously, this is a much more subtle, nuanced, you know, a, 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 a different understanding than just don't... I don't think anyone here is ever entertained trying to kill someone. You know, maybe if you have, you know, if you have your... Uh, protect your family, you know, if someone breaks into your house, maybe, you know. But that's, this, is not, this is not really uh, relevant to us, but... The idea of murdering someone's character uh, or murdering someone in, you know, I, I'll tell you guys what happened but, to me recently. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, but uh, understand the, what's the word? Uh, the, the, not analogy, but y'all know what I understand the, the, the point in the Talmud you just cited that you're murdering, you when you're oh, yeah. slandering someone's character, I mean, probably relates to gossip and everything when you're embarrassing someone, you're yes. just committing murder. But that's not that. That's a figure of speech, is it not? That even it, even it, in it, the Talmud, it is. It, I would say it is a figure of speech, of course, but it's not just uh, randomly chosen as a figure of speech. I'd like to give you an example. Let me tell you a practical. It's, it's law. not subject to the death penalty. Oh no, of course it's not. A, a, of course not. Okay. Um, but let me tell you. A, uh, there's a story in the Talmud, and then it comes with a conclusion. The story is well. The story is in the Torah. We know that uh, with the story of Judah and Tamar, his daughter-in-law, uh, in in Genesis, um, quickly the story is that uh, so basically Judah has three sons, and the first son marries this girl named Tamar, and the son dies, and he says, "Okay, we'll marry the second son," and he dies as well, and Judah's like, "Oh, this woman is bad luck or bad news," and he says, "Ah, the third son, he's still young. Come back and when he's ready." So uh, she leaves. She goes back to her household, her family, and eventually she realizes that this ain't happening. So what she does is she and she desires to have children from Judah be part of the Jewish people. 
she dressed get dressed up like a prostitute. She convinces Judah to uh, to patronize uh, her, and she becomes pregnant. And eventually, this causes such an uproar that ha- you know how was she pregnant, and she must have sinned. And Judah is actually the leader, and he's the guy who says, "Oh, okay, we're going to execute her." And even though he's the guilty party, so to speak, and as she's being taken away, she tells him, "Oh." Take a look at this uh, this signet ring and the staff, and just the guy who owns that. That's the person who's the father. And Judas sees him. He's like, "Oh, good." And everything becomes clear to him. He's like, "Oh, this is me." And the Thomas has a question. He says, "Why does she not just say, oh, Judah, you're the dad. You're the dad.' She's about to be killed, right? You got to save yourself from dying." What's Tamar thinking? Why is she saying, "I'll take a look at this and let him kind of make the conclusion or not"? Maybe he he could have just said. Oh yeah, I, I've never seen that one before. That staff, it's a nice looking staff. I'll take it. You know, he could have said that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Tamar did something, and then Judah did something as well. And by the way, Judah is the family of the king of the kingdom of the Jewish people. You know why? Because of this episode. Because Judah was able to admit his own mistakes, and a king, the most important quality that he has to have is the ability to be moda ala emes, to admit when they're wrong. And to not have the pride to stand by their mistake that they made. Because when, when, it, when someone in leadership has that quality, then it could be devastating for everyone involved. Judah made lots of mistakes in this story. Maybe. Not the least of which was his actions, but more than that was he did not offer up the third son. Yeah, well... He, he was. Yeah, well, he didn't offer up the third son. Well, he was he obligated flourish. to? I mean, yes, this is a good question. To, yes, Either way, we. Her to begin with. Either way, Judah still displayed uh, a remarkable quality by being able to admit their mis- mistakes, and that is. She brought them to where he physically had to see them. I mean, it took a lot to get him. He didn't know she was Tamar when he went to... That's true. He, didn't know he had no idea. She, she, right, that's right. Um, but now, so that's that's Judah. But what about Tamar? Right? Why is she not just announcing to everyone this Judah's the dad, Judah's the dad? That's what I would have done, right? Where is the guy? So the Talmud says, What does that mean? It means it's preferable for a man, for a person, to plunge themselves into a fiery furnace and not embarrass their fellow publicly. Now, obviously, this is a, this is a highly sensitive approach. But what it's telling us at the deepest levels that the idea of murder extends beyond actually shooting someone dead in cold blood. Uh, and that means that there's still room for us here as well. Uh, seven, thou shalt not commit idolatry, thou shalt not steal, uh, thou shalt not uh, commit perjury, right? Lie falsely. And thou shalt not covet the last of last four. Um, go ahead. Well, Rabbi, I was just gonna not to belabor this, but um, you know, I've always been um, intrigued, curious, whatever um, about because in most translations 
uh, of the Ten Commandments that you see in Gentile translations, they use the word kill. We all know that the original was Hebrew. There is a word for Hebrew. There is a word in Hebrew, is there not, for kill and for murder? Yes, yes. And they are different, are they not? Yes. The okay, word you that's didn't used. Get, I don't know Shitsa. if you just didn't have time or you didn't want to get into that. But, well, um, well, well. I did. I did allude to that earlier. Well, today. well, yell, yes, that's true. So, so, so you're trying to bring out the point that maybe there may be instances where killing. Uh, so you're saying, let's say, capital capital punishment is that a encroachment on well, this? I wasn't even referring. I mean, I, I was referring in a, as a more practical sense. Uh, well, you know, the war you can well, that's not capital punishment, though. That, but you're right. That's the point. I'm just trying to say, you know, I mean, some of the same people who are, I should, you know, some of them might be Christians. Some, you know, whatever they say, uh, "Thou shalt not kill" uh, means that thou, you're not supposed to to kill. You can't defend yourself. You can't. Yes. Yeah, so now, now sometimes they'll say, "Well, there's there's a difference there." Probably. Well, so the the problem is is that is that uh, you know they happen to be wrong, you know, mm-hmm. because the Torah makes it very clear in other places that let's say defend yourself. Someone coming to kill you, kill them first. Mm-hmm. That's that would be Talmud a mitzvah or the Torah. That's in the Torah. It's in the Talmud. It's everywhere. Uh-huh. Um, it's 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 very clear. Um, is the word that uh, in the commandment murder or? Well, in in the Ten Commandments, it's murder. It's clearly lo sertzach. The word laharod. Thank you, Leslie, for affirming that. The word laharod means to kill. The word retzach or tirzach is murder. So this means the uh, the the mur- the kind of killing which is not sanctioned uh, by the law. Um, like in a case in a case of war, obviously, uh, in a case where you have to defend yourself or your family or even your neighbor. Mm-hmm. As well, you will have to uh, to kill what's called a pursuer. Mm-hmm. Um, um, if you remember, just in Exodus, just a, uh, 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 the two chapters later, chapter twenty-two, mm-hmm. uh, twenty-one and twenty-two. I think it's twenty-two in Exodus. The first chapter, uh, twenty-two, verse one. It talks about the thief that's tunneling in. Y'all remember that? Mm-hmm. He's tunneling in. It says he has no blood. There's no blood guilt. It means you kill him, you're not guilty. You so there you go. That's right. They're intruder. They come in through the day, you are not that's right. That's that's right. That's really? the, that's the verse of the Torah. Now, why? Is well, the, the day the means that they're not coming with nefarious intentions. They're coming to steal, but they're not coming to kill you. But they come in at night, even God Himself. It's under the cover of darkness, so it's really a sin against God as well, because the um, the thought process that God can't see you, and obviously He can't. Yeah. So, uh, well, it's not necessarily day and night. The Talmud makes it clear that it means that if it's, it has to be. It has to be um, either clear as day that he's not coming to kill you for you to, for you to be guilty for killing the intruder. Okay, so maybe the, they're talking about it, but, but somebody can kill you during the day just as easy as they that's can. True. That, that, that's true. That's, that, that's, 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 that's why... That's just as have the same intent. That's why the Talmud says that when it says day, it doesn't mean literally day. Okay. It means that it has to be clear as day clear. that the person does not come with the intention to kill you. Okay. Like, for example, the example that it gives is if your dad comes and breaks into your house... You know your dad's not coming to kill you, right? It's clear as day. Okay. That's what it says. Most, um, most likely, in most cases, right? Uh, so therefore, if it's clear as day that the person is not coming to kill you, then you're not allowed to kill them. But uh, uh, to answer your question, we don't have to go more than two chapters away from the Ten Commandments to find a case where the Torah itself sanctions 
uh, you taking someone else's life in certain circumstances. So to say uh, that because of the Ten Commandments, you can never uh, legally, by Torah standards, kill someone uh, is a demonstration of someone not reading the whole book. Let me read a few chapters later. So 22, uh, chapter 22 in Exodus, verse 1, it's clear, uh, clear as day. Okay. Uh, there, there, like I said, there will be other examples as well. And the Torah talks about war, like how to operate, you know, how to operate in war. The Torah is clearly uh, understanding that war happens and people die in war. Let them, let them. Well, the, the Torah's perspective is always, um, well, not always, but in, in most cases, it's, it's uh, very pragmatic in, in war. It's not about, it's always about offering peace terms first. Um, it's always about trying to minimal, minimalize. And even today, like we see the, in, in Israel, it's interestingly, that Israel is the country more than any other, el- any, any other that is concerned about a collateral damage. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the way we operate war is also with the idea of, of God and morality uh, at the forefront. Even in the uh, ghastly uh, tragedy of war, uh, we cannot... And the Talmud even talks about how we can't just destroy trees. Like the, like the Torah is like environmentally friendly, even in war, which is bizarre, you know. It talks about how, how if, if you need to go potty, right, in the war... You gotta make sure you dig yourself a nice, I guess, you know, a nice uh, hole in the ground and you gotta cover it. In war times, that's what it says. You can't lose your humanity even in war. It's, it's, and this is so ironic because world propaganda tries to create the opposite impression of Israel. Uh, like Arab this morning. Pro- huh? Like this morning. I don't know what happened what this happened morning. morning. Well, they dropped a bomb and killed a pregnant lady. Oh, Israel did that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. An answer to their rocket attack and happened to kill a woman that was pregnant, for heaven's sakes. I didn't know the, the what. Yeah. So I'm sure they'll run that for all they can. You so. think that Israel uh, or the Israelis are against collateral damage because of world sanctions? Well, I, uh, well, I do think that's probably both. Yeah. I, 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 I do think that they're under uh, um, scrutiny more than the more than the Syrians, right? How many people died in the Syrian civil war? Three hundred thousand? It's insane. It's insane. Like, and the world doesn't care, uh, you know. But then, I bet you this pregnant woman was probably near a launching site of rockets, and they brought her there on purpose. Yeah. Exactly. So that should be a human shield, and you know, and they put all the bombs, all their all their all the armaments in like school buildings and film with. It seems you know it's ridiculous. So I, I do think it's 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 true as well. But I also think that. The idea of, you know, Jews aren't cruel. We're not. And uh, the Talmud even says that, 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 uh, that if someone displays cruelty, then they're not Jewish. Because Jews aren't cruel. So, you know, we never relish in, in the downfall of our enemy. Yeah, we might be happy uh, because of, you know, we don't, we, we, we don't want to, uh, to just hurt innocents. It's kind of what Golda I think Mata. it's probably both. Golda Meir said to Sadat, I will never, uh, I can forgive you for killing our people. I can never forgive you for making, allowing us to kill yours. Netanyahu just said a few weeks ago, just if uh, Iraq will put down their weapons, there'll be no more war. If we put down our weapons, we'll be annihilated. There'll be no more Israel, yeah. Mm -hmm.
mentioned uh, about the Ten Commandments are in descending order. Yeah, yeah. So well, the question, something you said in the previous class, the last, the Tenth Commandment is the highest elevation of showing your faith in God, not the covenant. Mm. It seems like well, so I told, but I also said that I read this last night, which was surprising to me. So yes, um, we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. How how the Tenth Commandment. How, what, what that actually means and how we could fulfill it. Yeah, but to me it was very surprising when I read that, that it's in descending order, because I would have thought that maybe the Tenth Commandment is the hardest one uh, to fulfill. Yeah. How does one get caught? Well, uh, well it's not about getting caught. And you know what? The, the, the two, uh, there are two mitzvahs of the Tenth Commandment that are in someone's mind. Right, the first and the last. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask. How do you even define the word covet? I mean, isn't there many definitions? Desire, lust. Okay, that's want. what I would have thought. So, the, the, and we're not we're not playing around with the with the definitions of the word. Crave, crave, okay. desire. Okay, but it, 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 it to want what some what someone else has. You know, their 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 house, their spouse, their their their, their, their all the examples that it gives. In the in the sinister, but I mean, if I want to have. Okay, let's leave the spouse out. But if I want to have a, a nicer house, for example, uh, and if I like, if a friend of mine has a nice house, I want to have a nice house. Is there anything wrong with that? Uh, if I want to earn it, if I want to take it yeah, from I my know, friend, there's something wrong. Right. With so, that. huh? It's really wants to take it. But it's not wanting. It's believing that the other person doesn't deserve. Well, that's a new spin on what, and I don't mean spin in a derogatory way. I, that's a new uh, uh, explanation of, because I didn't know how many people, unless you're just downright evil, how many people want to take or, or want to say that, that they didn't deserve it? I mean, I you know, I mean, there's people out there, I'm sure, that say Okay. All right. Well, and they're atheists anyway, so uh, you know. Yeah, but the question is, yeah. how? Um, how does the rabbis define covet? Yes, yeah, so I want to talk about this yeah, a little bit. I think bit, there's but, a little more to it than that. Than, but than desiring that that I cannot have. Desiring that which I can't. Um, have. So, so the question is like this: is, In America, is there, we can have anything we want. Well, you know, that's can't have your neighbor's wife, right? Well, I or said his house. leave out the wife part. Or his house. Uh, you know, uh, well, actually, or his house. Or his car. Bathsheba technically was not married. Because you were the one that said that Uriah, before the troops went to war, they essentially divorced his wife. So technically, Bathsheba was married. That's right. Don't play me. I didn't say it. I just told you what, what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, I... I That is the question that I want to ask. You can control it. You control it successfully. It's exactly the question I want to ask. Is there a difference between admire and covet? For sure. For sure. That's my whole point. How do you define it? I think Steve's point is correct that it's sometimes very beneficial for you to kind of up your game in life. Whatever, whatever part of life we're talking about, where someone, where you see someone else do something, and that spurs you to become greater yourself, uh, because of maybe this base desire to desire to, to you know to want that as well. 
Uh, but is there something wrong with, let's say, seeing the uh, sales of your coworker and saying, oh, I'm going to push myself a little further? No, I don't want to end up I with the steak knives. Not. I would hope not that that's, there's nothing wrong with that. I, you know, so, so is that under the category of, of that? But I, I think the question is, uh, you know, that Vitaly pointed out, I think that's, a, that's probably, the, that's probably the, really the, the, the core problem with this is that, okay, you want something. How do I make myself not want something? Well, How do I change something which is, like you said, is hardwired? seems like it's just reasonable to say or interpret it 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 means don't feel don't feel you can take it because somebody else has it so that that's, you can take so it that's the thing them. it doesn't that's, say don't take other people's stuff it says don't covet them if someone does not act upon this yeah, the action, the if they don't act upon it it seems like they're still yeah. in conflict with this mitzvah that's why it's so hard to understand like I, I, the Torah to tell us the Torah perhaps I think it's very fearful to tell us, hey, you want your neighbor's stuff? Don't try to come up with schemes to try to get it. That seems more reasonable. For us, this is taking us a step further. Don't even desire it. How, what do we go about to do? What if I do desire it? And how do we not? You see something really nice, a nice car, a nice house, right? You, you desire it, and that seems natural. How is the Torah reasonably, realistically telling us to not desire what someone else has? Because we are diminishing our lot. When you look at what somebody else has in no. comparison to no, what you have. No, this is why you shouldn't desire, but not how you shouldn't desire. Well, maybe, maybe the how is would help you with the why. There's a gratitude implicit in what you have. And when you look at what somebody else has. Yours gets your diminished. Cup. You, no, you, you see that Ferrari and your dopamine is washes over your brain, right? And you cannot control that. Right? Well, is that it dopamine be, or is it is it, is it is it is it is it uh, envy? Is that what they say in Rwanda? Because <laughs> it's dopamine. It's just that guy's ri- driving the Ferrari. You're driving your clunky Camry. Well, and that you think about driving a Ferrari, it makes you feel good. It's dopamine. That's a thing. Well, the born driving the Ferrari. Sandy, you were saying. If I could read from the Hamash, the commentary on, on COVID. Well, I have a commentary here that I don't know if it's if it's mentioned there. Um, I want to just because it's fairly long. So this you short. go ahead. It says, how can the Torah forbid something as normal as jealousy and being desirous of someone else's possessions? Does this not fly in the face of human nature? It's quite expected that an ignorant, poverty-stricken peasant might covet his neighbor's daughter, but would never dawn on him to lust after the queen. She is so lofty and inaccessible that such a thought would never enter his mind. The point is that sensible, logical people long to acquire only things that are within their frame of reference, not things that are beyond the scope of their imagination. Mm. Similarly, if someone has complete faith in God, he would recognize that property that God wanted his neighbor to have is as inaccessible to him as the queen is to a poor peasant. And that's from the Ibn Ezra, is that right? Thank you. I, I so that's what I have quoted here. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's still, it means See everybody is relegated to the status quo. You can't yeah. ever advance in life. The peasant is always going to be a peasant, can't ever be the king. That's what it sounds like to me. You say it, I can't advance myself at the expense of somebody else. 
Well, th- that's what I just said, and that's not the yeah, way so I let's, uh, so, um, so this, this Ibn Ezra, which is one of the great commentaries on the Torah, uh, this is a very famous one. So I, I, I knew when you said you're going to read it the, uh, that, uh, that this is what you were going to say. Um, so, so he gives this example, uh, and he says a little bit more. So I'll just, I'll just add uh, to what you read. Um, he says, um, like, if you know something is, and this, I think, I think will be uh, will ameliorate your problem. Um, okay. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't. No, this is okay. But no. like this, what he what, what he's saying is that there are some things that are so beyond the like the frame of reference, or even the, the, your wildest imaginations. That you don't even desire it. And he gives other examples. So he says, you know, the peasant is has no, there's no conceivable or even inconceivable situation where the peasant ends up with the with the queen. Doesn't happen. Um, and he gives another example here. He gives in, in the in the in the court I've written in front of me here in Hebrew, uh, and he says, it is as reasonable for some, for the peasant to imagine that they'll end up with the queen or the princess. As that they'll grow wings and start flying in the in the sky like a bird. Ain't that nice? I guess now we have those hover hovercrafts or whatever. Yeah. Maybe we can do it. <laughs> and this is written a long time ago. But either way, it, it, it's something like that would be really nice. Wouldn't it be really nice to be able to have wings and fly home and save on all that? But it's gas? also isn't the point is that's impossible. That's right. Okay. So it's impossible. So why don't we desire it? Because it's impossible. Uh, he gives another example here, which I think is maybe slightly different. He says. Uh, uh, no matter how beautiful someone's mom is, they don't desire her. Why not? Because it's the movie. Exactly. And he says something that, that is so ingrained in your mind that it's, it's off limits, you don't desire it. That's one thing. Or if something that you cannot possibly obtain in any way, it's also off, it's also, you don't desire it. Okay, so so this is step number one, right? So so what it's telling us, I think, step number one is that our desire, our coveting, our lust, our wanting something—it's not blind. Like Vitaly's like, hey, this is what I want. It's ingrained. It's hardwired. What it's saying is that okay, we see some things that are not hardwired. It would be lovely to fly around like a bird, but it's so beyond that it's not something we would desire. So so our desire is not hardwired. It is actually. Uh, because we feel that something may be obtainable, that's why we desire it. Let's move on to step number two. So too, I'm reading this a direct quote from the Ibn Ezra. It's a very famous Ibn Ezra, that's why I knew it was going to be the one uh, mentioned here. So too, a man be- uh, should recognize that the beautiful woman or the lots of money or the fancy house or the fancy car, right? it's only a product of what the Almighty allows you to have. And therefore, if someone actually has the faith to such a degree where they realize that the Almighty apportions to everyone what they need or what, or what they're, they, 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 they ought to have and nothing else, therefore, someone else's house or car or wife or whatever or ox or whatever should be as unobtainable as flying around like a bird. Or as the princess or the queen for the peasant. So what really it's saying here is that this mitzvah is a mitzvah that really is an extension of faith. Or it's a manifestation of faith. Wherein 
the faith gets so rooted, maybe even hardwired into our psyche that not only do I think that things that are physically unobtainable are beyond what I desire, but things that are seemingly obtainable when I realize that the Almighty gives me what I need and what even beyond what I need, but that there's a certain allowance that the Almighty gives for me and nothing else. Thus, what I can obtain, I will obtain. What my, what my neighbor has obtained, I won't obtain. His stuff or his stuff, my stuff or my stuff, that faith will remove the desire. But to me, this is so un-American. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, who's to say? If I say my neighbor has this great house, oh, I want his house. Now, that's a bad thing. But to say, I want a house like his, and I'm going to go to school, and I'm going to get a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and I'm going to become a doctor, and I'm going to be able to afford it, and I'm going to get this great big house. And I'm going to heal people in the process of getting it. Yes. And I think I'm that, going to create wealth. And I think that's fine. I don't think that's necessarily... I don't think that that... But I think that... That may be okay. I don't think that's necessarily coveting. I think maybe you're getting inspired. Uh, well, that, that's what I by try. your neighbor. And, and 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 as Janet told us, first of all, if it's un-American, it's not necessarily. Uh, 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 Janet, you start off by saying that our system, our society, is not necessarily uh, so moral. Yeah, this is that? well, but this is pre-America. We all understand of course. that. But yet, but we I, also know. The framers of our of our law of our of our Declaration of Independence believed in a lot of this stuff. True, but I, I think there's uh, nothing wrong with saying, "I want a beautiful wife or a beautiful house, a beautiful car." Are, are we at a place where only Donald Trump can say, "The Lord is my shepherd; I lack nothing"? No, of course not. Well, he said that when he's whenever he's wrong, he'll admit it. Uh, he said that the other night on Jimmy Kimmel. True, 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 true. But we're trying to change. We're trying to change something that, from our earliest life and earliest experiences, has been part. You see the you're, 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 that the child sees that the other guy has the other kid has a lollipop. I want that lollipop, right? My, my you know, the other days I my kids, right? Uh, when their friend comes over. And there's this toy that's been neglected for months. And suddenly the neighbor or the friend starts playing with it. He's like, oh, I want that toy. Right? It's ubiquitous. Right? And, and why? It's not because they want the toys. because someone else has and that arouses a certain desire for that toy. Well, I, and I, that I kind of – that as we grow, we advance, that doesn't necessarily change. And the Torah is telling us that we have to change it. Well, how do we change it? So what he's telling us, I think it's an incredible idea. We have to, we have to really, um, uh, but how? How does it work? It works because there are certain things that we won't desire because it, they're beyond. Well, it, it, how do we make things that are not ours, our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's house, our neighbor's car, our neighbor's everything? How do we move those things into the category of they're beyond our possibility? By, I think what you said, or what it said, is by believing more in God, and that will make you content enough to where you don't need this other stuff. I think. No, no not, not only that. You don't need them. You realize that the Almighty gave it to them and not to you. Yes. And that and that will move into this category of being unobtainable, and thus you won't desire it. I thought we had free will. True, we have free will. Yeah. 
So and you didn't necessarily give us these things. And the earned it or. True, but with, with it, you're right. But our, our free will is limited to what means our free will in, in let's say, earning, uh, right, uh, is limited to what the Almighty allows. There's an allowance, of course. Our our actions matter, and I, I I would even argue that we could go and take the neighbor's wife in house, right? It's possible, right, by force. It happens frequently. <laughs> <laughs> Too frequently. Yeah, it, happens, it happens every day. Yeah. You know, I, I'm I'm building a new home. I had another home. I love the home I was in. I appreciated what I had. That didn't mean I had to stay there forever. No one's saying so, you have to. Yeah, exactly. I know you're not saying and, that. And no one, we're not, this is a mitzvah that's not talking about any behavior. It's talking about in your mind, in your heart, do you pass someone else's house and have some sort of angst that that's someone else's house and not yours? That's the only thing. It's not about behavior. So you built a house, building a house as nice and beautiful as, as, as possible. Take inspiration from your neighbor. Right? But the point is that this is a very subtle and, and point yeah. in someone's uh, feelings that the Torah is telling us we cannot have. And that is, you see someone else's beautiful wife, right? or really fancy car, right? you don't even for a second <coughs> desire it at all. That's what the Torah wants us. And how do we do that? We find out that that's really an extension of faith, where the faith actually changed what we would have thought is hardwired. It's interesting how you always mentioned coveting the neighbor's wife. Nobody talks about coveting the neighbor's husband. <laughs> but it's 50-50, you know. That would be, I, I think that would be, uh, that would be included, obviously. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Everything. Everything that you're, you're that's the, that's the, uh, the, the last words is, is, is very inclusive. Don't cover, don't cover this, that, that, and everything that the neighbor has. You know, so it's not about behavior. It's not about acting in a way yeah, that's now, different. Now, the feminists, about, the feminists would say that's part of the chauvinism of the Bible. Okay, uh, it was written by men, you know, or, or excuse me, it was typed. But I, you know, but one of the things I've read is that you should wake up every day knowing that you have the exact amount of material resources for that day that Hashem wants you to have. So what you do with those resources throughout the day is better yourself and the people around you is fantastic. Yeah, and, and and incidentally, like it's not it doesn't this doesn't mean that the Torah the Torah wants us to disavow materialism. Because in fact the opposite's true. We find with Jacob, Jacob endangers his life to 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 to, uh, to um, go pick up a few little cans, right? Jacob was a really wealthy person and then he, he had left on the other he was crossing the river and on the other side of the river he left a few like pots and cans and jars and jugs, and he goes back and he finds it. And then he has to struggle with the angel, but he essentially endangers his life to save, uh, you know, a little bit, little can. You say you're so wealthy, you're going back to, you, know, you, you see the the super wealthy guy who who dropped, who left a quarter in the uh, uh, in the phone booth, you know, and he's a mile away and he turns around and. She makes the U-turn and goes back to collect the quarter. Doesn't seem right, right? You know, you have enough, right? That that that's what that's what you would imagine. And cost him more and fuel to go back. Maybe. <laughs> and and it tells us and one of what tells us about, about about Jacob that Jacob he did that and we th- we would think maybe it's a mistake. And then the Talmud tells us more. It says that that uh, that that Sadiqim, the righteous people, they value their their money more than their body. Which seems very bizarre, right? 
money is not so important. So, well, maybe money is important if you realize that money came from God. Well, why is it more important than your body then? Money, body also came from God. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, you know, perhaps the answer is is that, um, you know, with your money you could do more mitzvahs than with your body. I don't know. That's a good question. But either way, uh, to to argue that the Torah is telling us that we don't value materialism, that's a mistake as well. We value it a lot because we realize it came from God. But in that same vein, because we realize it came from God, and what the neighbor got came from God to him as well, and not to me. I shouldn't desire that if I have real faith. So essentially, uh, we could we could say that there's this this stream that links the first and the last commandment. How do I know if I have true faith if I, if I don't covet? How do I know if I fulfill the first of the Ten Commandments if I fulfill the last? Um, and I think someone could you know pray and study and go to the synagogue and everything. And you would think from the outside that this person has complete faith. And then if he covets, we find that there's still room to grow. Um, just say another, another interesting uh, related insight here. Uh, then we'll let you guys go because it's been uh, overtime as usual. I apologize for that. We find, so what this is telling us is, I think, that the Torah's ultimate, means if we're to zoom out now, okay, now we know what what it means to not covet and how we get there. Well, what what does that show, what does that demonstrate of the Torah's demands for us? What does that, what does that show? The Torah is not just trying to change our behavior. And not even our 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 priorities. It's trying to ch- to totally change the things that we would even argue are uncontrollable aspects of our lives. You know, things that we don't even consciously do, like you know, to change the way you think is maybe a hard thing to do. But to change what you desire, that seems much harder. The Torah is trying to penetrate us to such a degree. That it changes us from the inside out. It changes not only the way we behave, not only the way we think, but even the way we desire, which is even uh, on a deeper level in our consciousness. Uh, I found another example here. Like, what does it mean someone who's a Torah scholar? So we find various definitions throughout Jewish writings about what you know who is considered a Torah scholar. I found one in the in this in the book of Sota. Uh, where it says that a Torah scholar is someone who, who studies Torah, okay, mm-hmm. and that's their main focus in life, thinks about the Torah all the time, and doesn't walk four cubits without thinking about Torah. So what does that mean? Four cubits is about eight feet. What this means is like this. Without conscious thought, without directed intellectual focus, someone's just basic thought. Like, what are your thoughts meander to when you're not thinking about anything? Right? So that's just basic. What do you think? I don't know. You, you, your mind, your fantasies, your imagination, you know, you revert back to what happened that day or what your plans are tomorrow. Right? But when you're not focusing on something, it's very hard for us to imagine someone to just revert to the default state of Torah study. You know, what the Torah is telling us is that through Torah study, through conscious Torah study, it's possible to become to, 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 to achieve unconscious Torah study, wherein you're just the false state of thinking of mind. For you don't walk for for cubits. That, that's not a controlled, focused, directed uh, a thought, energy, uh, intellectual pursuit. That is just what you think about at random. 
it's possible for us to change ourselves even at that level of our existence. Uh, and all this is included with the Ten Commandments. Like the Ten Commandments is telling us that there, there are parts of our, uh, of our life that we would think is uncontrollable, so deep within ourselves, you know, such a basic uh, uh, aspect of our lives, and even that we're trying to change. So um, in conclusion, I think that we talk about the Ten Commandments, uh, what we clearly see is that there is... Uh, a lot beyond what we would just typically uh, accord it by a reading of it. Of course, the majority of the world is familiar with the idea of the Ten Commandments and what what they talk about. Uh, What we see is that this is really something encompassing. You know, it's all the Torahs included in the Ten Commandments, all the Torahs included in the first two. These are instructions that can really create us from beginning to end. We see how each commandment really is more than just one mitzvah. It really incorporates a lot of mitzvahs. Uh, but it's, even the first two it incorporates everything. And we talk about idolatry. Idolatry incorporates anything that has any value aside from God. Like, wow, how much room is there for us to take these Ten Commandments and, and, and use them as a, as a method, as a tool mm-hmm. to become really great people. And uh, it's, that's why it takes such a focal point in Jewish philosophy, you know, in fact, there used to be a time where this was included in the, in the daily prayers. Talmud says, interestingly, that the pray, it was taken out of the prayers because uh, the heretics would say, oh, it's this, these are the mitzvahs that we mentioned in the prayers. This is all we've got. All the other mitzvahs are not important. That's why they had to take it out of the, the prayers to prevent that uh, cynical response. But clearly, the Almighty uh, outlined for us at Mount Sinai a uh, approach to become great people uh, with these 10 principles, these 10 categories. And uh, let's be inspired by the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're familiar with it. Uh, let's first of all read the Ten Commandments and just l- learn about this experience and uh, kind of think about the, the impact and the influence uh, uh, and the ramifications of this experience on its own, but also what it means for us today, you know, how we could utilize this uh, this section of the Torah to really uh, mobilize ourselves and become uh, great people that the Torah envisions that we can become. Thanks all. Thanks you all. Thank you all for coming and listening. Thank you very much. Uh, apologize for going, for going over overboard, and I look forward to seeing you guys in two weeks. Next week I will.